Hello, listeners. Thank you for joining us for the Real Perspectives podcast. We hope you'll enjoy this episode and share it with your colleagues and friends because it has some nugget of information that may pertain to your daily work. There are more episodes in our library, too, so if you like them or have any thoughts, ideas, or suggestions, please don't hesitate to reach out. Thanks again. Welcome to the Real Perspectives podcast, where we shine a light on trailblazers, visionaries, and disruptors shaping the commercial real estate landscape. I'm your host, Vladimir Bosanets, and today we have the privilege of diving into the extraordinary journey of one such influential figure. Joining us is Camille Renshaw, the CEO and co-founder of B C. Camille Renshaw is a true force to be reckoned with in the world of commercial real estate. As the leader and co-founder of B C, an innovative brokerage technology platform, Camille has redefined the way commercial properties are bought and sold. Prior to B C, Camille honed her expertise in real estate, finance, and technology through her remarkable career journey. She has worked with esteemed organizations such as Collier's, 10X, and Stan Johnson, amassing a wealth of knowledge and experience that sets her apart as a thought leader in the field. Camille's relentless pursuit of innovation has been the driving force behind B C's achievements. Under her leadership, the company has introduced cutting-edge technologies that streamline and simplify the buying and selling of commercial real estate, making it more accessible to investors and market participants worldwide. So get ready to be inspired and captivated as we embark on this journey with Camille Renshaw, the visionary CEO and co-founder of B C. Camille, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Doing great. Excellent. Where do we find you today? Where are you? I'm in Brooklyn, New York this morning. Excellent. I'm based out of New York City. Okay. All right. Um, and Camille, is your office back in full swing? Um, as you know, most people in the industry wish they were. Um, where are you guys on the sort of spectrum of you know returning to work and kind of you know going back to the office? We are fully engaged. I would say that before the pandemic, we had a number of workers that we have always been happy to have remote. Brokers spend a lot of time on the phone, but we really do like it when they work near each other at least a few days a week so that they have that collaboration. It can be great to be a broker. It can be difficult to be a broker. So we find that teaming and sharing experiences is really important. Some of our marketing personnel have always been remote. That hasn't really changed. Yeah. But I would say that we have eight offices at BNE nationwide. We are back in all of those offices. New York City is the one that uh, is our largest office, and we are definitely in full swing here in terms of brokers, analysts, and myself. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, I'm always curious sort of where companies are and kind of how they're dealing with this. It is the it is a big disruptor, I think, that's changing the industry. So I am I am curious. Um, so Camille, uh, by way of introduction, uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about, you know, your background, uh, you know, your yourself in general, and sort of how, you know, the winding road of your career got you to where you are today? Sure. I grew up in Tennessee in a small town. I was fourth generation to go to the University of Tennessee. Uh, have a family that was very involved in or isn't very involved with farming, farmland. So there's certainly always been real estate in my family life. 
it's not an area that I thought I would go into. Instead, I started coding when I was in seventh grade. I thought I would go into technology, but certainly being from Jackson, Tennessee, I didn't have a lot of female role models in tech. I didn't have a lot of role models in tech at all. Uh, I didn't have a lot of folks that I could look at and say, oh, I want to be them when I grow up exactly. So I ended up meandering a bit. I think that combined with my natural entrepreneurial spirit has gotten me involved in a number of businesses over the years. When I was in school, one of my father's philosophies for all of his kids was that we had to pay for our own college. He felt it built certain values in his kids. And I I do think it it has for each of us. We've had success in our varying fields and certainly could look back at that as a key component. For me, I worked for the university on a neural networks project for five years. My fifth year, I was in a fellowship and just kind of continued on that neural networks project. I took that skill set and in my 20s was involved in a number of technology startups I sold a couple of those with some success, and that's actually when my family came back, my father and my grandfather, and said, hey, don't blow this money. You may never see this amount of capital again. You should invest this, and let's talk about how. They felt strongly that I should invest in stocks and, in particular, in real estate. I bought a portfolio of single-family homes, and I bought a portfolio of single-tenant commercial real estate. I ended up, uh, sometimes as they say, it's better to be lucky than good. Not really through a skill set that I had developed yet. I hated the residential. I just, it was not for me. It was way too hands-on in terms of property management. Yeah, yeah. And I ended up selling most of that in 2005, uh, 2004, 2005, 2006, which as many of your listeners will know, was probably the ideal time for me to sell a bunch of single-family homes, but I didn't really know that. Again, it was better to be lucky than good. And I doubled down on single-tenant and at least commercial real estate. I did not necessarily see that as a career path or the one that it's become over the last 20 years or near almost 20 years. Uh, I really saw it as just matching my investment style and that it would do the thing that it does for most of B&E's clients today. It frees them up to invest or, or uh, participate in different uh, parts of their lives, be it business, family, whatnot, because it's so uh, such limited property management, even limited asset management. So that was a fit for me. I also loved the math that was involved, the credit analysis that I, I came to learn and love. Uh, so I, I actually, the first single tenant asset I ever bought in Orlando, Florida, I still own today. I I just, I developed into a long-term commercial real estate owner through that passion and and that good experience. I've definitely had tenants blow out and all the things that happened to other owners and the uh, heartbreak that comes with the great recession and the pandemic and all those knocks. But I would say that those have turned out to be very durable investments and I, and I've loved it. That led to me wanting to learn more about investing in commercial real estate, and I became a broker with Collier's shortly thereafter, really to see, uh, in my grandfather's words, you know, see what other people do well, see what they've invested in, see what they failed at, and try and learn from other people investing instead of having to do it all myself. And that's worked really, really well. 
the thing I think my family didn't count on is that I caught the bug. I really loved brokerage. <laughs> right. right, right. And that's led to a number of investments. Uh, you know, flash forward, I've served on some great commercial real estate brokerage firms, uh, teams. I was head of sales at 10X, which at that time was a Google Capital company. I have founded a number of other commercial real estate tech companies, including B plus E. I have invested in a lot of companies. Capway, who has the youngest person in American history to ever own a bank as their founder. Uh, Blaze, which is basically an Airbnb for event venues. Okay. I've done some wonderful projects throughout the years. B plus E is certainly my baby at this point. You know, the thing that I spend every or nearly every waking moment thinking about and working on and trying to grow and expand. Uh, and it's, it's been a great time. We're in our sixth year now. Congratulations. Yeah. So tell us about uh, B, B plus C. Is it B plus C or B and E? Sorry, uh, just so I get this correct. We generally say B plus E. Okay. Uh, and either, either is fine. Yeah. And tell us uh, what does what does that stand for? But also, you know, what does the company do? And kind of, you know, how has that vision from your experience in real estate, you know, come through in, um, in, in it's actually, you know, coming alive, right? Yeah, great question. B plus E stands for brokers plus engineers. When Scott Scourge and I founded it, as I'm saying, uh, 2017, we had a bet we placed on human plus tech. We felt and continue to feel that's the future of commercial real estate is it will not be a full disruption of people. There's such large dollars at stake. There's so much risk for all of our families, for various institutions. You really need both technology and senior people on every transaction in order to guarantee that you're making the uh, best decisions. We feel that even today, commercial real estate firms are not investing enough in technology. Um, the tech investments that have been made by most firms would, you'd never have a stock company, you know, your stock brokerage firm, if they didn't have a great app, if they didn't have a great database, if they didn't have terrific analytic skills, if they didn't have their own technology platform, you wouldn't be a customer. Yet we do it all the time in commercial real estate. Yeah. So that's the place that B plus E has really doubled down and made a huge investment. We have a great brokerage team, as I said, that's in eight cities nationwide, and we do deals in all 50 states, uh, single tenant only, um, U.S. only. But we have a technology platform that is made just for 1031 exchangers. It's called 1031 Trade that helps families work together collaboratively through their 45-day decision-making period. We have seller dashboards that are really like, you know, living real-time owner reports. So then in the middle of the night or right before an investment committee meeting, whatever they need, they can check in on us and see down to the phone call who we've talked to and what the feedback has been and how the transaction uh, and its marketing are moving along. Uh, we behind that have what we believe is the largest database in that lease. And candidly, that's where we started. We didn't really mean to build all these other things. It's like a lot of tech companies where you start with one thing. We want to understand the U.S. market. We want to see real time all the transactions or, or properties that are available for transacting on 
you know, what's available. We want to see how many Walgreens are on the market right now, how many FedExes, um, how many medical assets are available this quarter versus last quarter. What are the trends? What's the average cap rate for a Walmart? That sort of thing. In terms of not what's closed, not looking backwards, because you know, right now is a great moment to look at. It really doesn't matter what Walmart traded for sure. a year ago or even six months ago. It matters what's available right now. Again, very much like the stock market. So we've approached creating a technology platform at B plus E that mirrors what we've seen the NASDAQ do, what we've seen Schwab do, a number of different great you know, stock platforms or stock brokerage firms, because we also track one tenant or one credit, right? So there's just a ton we have in common with that segment. And we really love stealing best practices from that segment. Yeah. That's what's elevated the confidence of our clients. Yeah, makes sense. You mentioned something. Uh, so just for the benefit of our audience, uh, net lease, w- would you just quickly describe you know, what, what, what that means and sort of why this is important for you guys? Sometimes it's easiest to think of the net lease segment. Uh, net lease segment is sometimes N and N, capital N's, like three nets. The easiest way to think about it often is that it has one tenant. That's usually what people mean. In terms of the kind of lease that it has, anybody who works in commercial real estate knows that all leases are not built equally. They're all very, very different. And how language in one lease might describe a roof is really different than in a different lease. The concept is when you have one tenant, they want to control the property. So they want to control the roof. They want to control the HVAC. They want to control the maintenance, the janitorial, everything. So they actually get a much lower base rental rate so that they handle all those expenses themselves. So it's nice from a landlord perspective. My grandfather would call it mailbox money. You can have a 7-Eleven and just get a check in the mail. 7-Eleven does everything. They're going to snowplow. They're going to pay the property tax. They're going to do everything. And you really just get a check each month. Uh, Camille, you also mentioned um, in one of your answers recently, uh, you, you said that, that you sort of help families, you know, think of, you know, how to invest and that kind of stuff. Um, I think this is part of your, uh, you know, vision as well, right? You guys uh, um, work with family offices. Is this is this correct? We have a major focus on family offices. To be clear, we work everything from a $1 million transaction to hundreds of millions. We are known for having the largest transaction that a digitally enhanced platform's ever done, a $324 million sale leaseback of Bass Pro Cabela properties, uh, portfolio of those. But and that was institution to institution transaction. A lot of the $1 million, $2 million trades are for families or private individuals. But the majority of what we do is in that 25 to $75 million strata with family offices trading assets. It may still come out and look like a four or $5 million individual McDonald's, but generally we're working with a portfolio that's 75 or hundred million and trying to help them make good decisions day to day. Most yep. of our software is built so that the whole family can get in there. Usually it's four or five people, but we have had a family of 30 with equal voting rights work on a $250 million trade with us. But it it's made to 
ease some of the tension among the family as they try and communicate with one another and manage timelines. Yeah. Camille, was this a conscious decision on your behalf to sort of go after this segment or or did that just sort of evolve no. uh, organically? <laughs> <laughs> like I would say most most decisions in technology, hopefully you're being really patient and mindful um, while working really hard uh, towards some goal. Uh, but you get surprised. You figure out who really gravitates towards what you're building. You know, a lot of the uh, institutions that are out there don't need that level of communication, you know, or are not as interested in working with a singular brokerage firm that could help manage all of their assets. And then obviously, we're happy to work with smaller investors, but that's just not the bulk. You know, it doesn't have the bulk that a family office would. For our family offices, again, that often have 10, 20, 30 properties, this gives them a place to look at them all at once to, uh, you know, if they have five properties on the market at once to have them in one dashboard rather than viewing a lot of disparate looking PDFs. And, you know, again, as someone who invests with family, it is often hard to communicate with one another. And our goal is to ease that communication burden and at the same time raise the confidence of everybody participating in the trade. Yeah. And and the reason I ask, because as you were describing your background and sort of how you got into the industry, you often, you know, mentioned your grandfather and your and your, you know, family has sort of helped you kind of navigate through through uh, you know, your own path, right? So Certainly. I am I am curious yeah. if there was something, you know, of a subconscious kind of, you know, decision or maybe not a decision, but you sort of fell into it because you're, you know, familiar with that, right? So um, I might have a good antenna for it. That may be what happened. I get quoted quite a bit, uh, or I'm quoting my grandmother quite a bit. Um, My grandmother, my mother, my father, my grandfather, they all played a significant role. Today, I work a lot with my siblings on things. So I get it. I have a lot of empathy for our clients and what they're struggling to um, address, you know, solve for. Yeah, yeah, no, very, very um, interesting. Um, so if we can switch gears here a little bit, I would love to kind of, you know, ask you a little bit about the industry in general. I mean, you do have a perspective uh, that's maybe national. Um, you kind of get to see different, you know, product types, what's happening across the industry. I'm curious kind of as you survey, you know, what's uh, coming over your platform, what's happening here in, you know, Q2 of, uh, you know, 2023? It's good to put a timestamp on it, I would say. Yes. It changes so much <laughs> right. week to week and month to month right now. That's probably, that, that volatility will, will probably be one of the most memorable things of this period in American uh, history and economics. We are looking at getting another bump from the Fed here in a few hours. And yet this morning, there's still dialogue that maybe it won't happen, Phil very certain it will happen. And we all hope it's the last one, right? That conversation is the conversation that all of our investors and staff are having on a daily basis. What is going to happen next? What do these economic trends mean? How does inflation influence our business? What do we do as lending is slowing down? I think those are really important questions. And the answers vary greatly depending on the segment in which you work. I think for commercial real estate in general, this is a difficult period because 
liquidity is becoming very limited. We're having, uh, you know, the, the debt constant, or if you want to think about it more simply, the mortgage interest rate is higher than the cap rate in many cases. So there's negative leverage if you're thinking about buying something for the first time. But if you're trying to sell something and you projected the cap rate would be very different now or you bought it at a very different cap rate, it's not attractive to sell. And then you're trying to contemplate how to refinance it. Those are all really difficult questions. And I think we're encouraging a lot of folks to sit tight and not make any moves as they wait to see what ultimately will happen with the Fed rate over the coming couple of years. In that lease, it's a little bit different. And again, I say you have to take these things sector by sector, even within that lease. The overall economic trends are having a negative impact on net lease REITs in terms of their liquidity, where their stock prices are. They are all very active. It's just not as active as they have been in years past. I haven't spoken to one net lease REIT since Q4 that will release guidance on what it's going to do in 2023. So that in itself is very telling. They're not sure or they're afraid that if they say what they're really going to do, it will have a further negative impact on their stock price. Because I think most of them are proceeding very slowly. They haven't purchased that much year to date. I imagine that in Q4, there'll be a big shift as they work to get money out in this fiscal year. As far as smaller investors go, a lot of that money, the 1031 exchanges, come from multifamily, and multifamily is taking a beating right now. So that domino isn't falling uh, quite so frequently as it was. Now, I am speaking to exchangers on a daily basis that are coming out of multifamily. So the spigot is not completely turned off, but I think it actually has had a more detrimental impact on smaller investors than folks who have... um, in, you know, multifamily apartment investments that are closer to 20 to 50 million. The middle segment, the family office has a tremendous amount of liquidity and they may not be all cash, but they're cash heavy and very low leverage. So they're not in the same negative leverage category. Now they are proceeding with caution and they're seeing that their cash has real buying power. So there is some impact on cap rates, but generally when you're you know, the, the average net lease asset is $5.5 million in size in the U.S. If you're below that $5 million watermark, it's a high probability that that buyer is all cash. So the debt constant just isn't as relative. And there are often other factors at play for that family. They are going to have huge tax savings from doing a 1031 exchange, uh, 1033 exchange, or participating in buying something like a car wash that's going to get 80% bonus depreciation. Wherever the cap rate is, those factors are massive. They're much bigger than a 100 basis point delta in cap rate that may swing with a debt constant. They are going to go ahead and complete that transaction. Also, family offices, which we, we all have in our own lives, so you can project on these families, they have births, they have marriages, they have people who are, um, uh, who die, who retire, people who uh, s- secede their parents in terms of taking over the company. And all of those things generate different investment decisions than the day, you know, the day, the year, the decade before. So you have to go ahead and pay for the kid's school. 
you, you know, have some opportunity to buy your father out of his business, you're going to make a sale lease back happen. So transactions continue for family offices. That's why I think year over year B&E is looking at 25% revenue growth at this point in the year. And uh, I think it falls points directly to family offices. That's the level of activity they're having relative to the market. Yeah, and that was going to be my follow-up question. You know, what does this specifically mean for your platform and for your business? Um, usually, We're busy. You know, yeah, I mean, I was I was, I was going to say time of disruption of disruption is usually time of opportunity as well, right? So, um, how does a platform like like yours, you know, help you know challenge what a you know typical brokerage sort of business does? Um, you know, I would I would love to sort of get a get a sense from you as as much as you're willing to share about sort of you know how how that you know you know prepares you guys for the for the next uh, for the next level of growth, I suppose. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting question that we're reviewing internally. You can imagine that we are seeing our peers drop in terms of revenues 20, 30 percent or sometimes more year to date or year over year. And so we have wondered if that would happen to us. And at this point, not only has it not, but our, our pipeline is really robust. So you do ask yourself why. And I, I think family offices is a a big factor. I think there's a lot of hard work at play. We have folks, we just tend to hire people who are hardworking. And I honestly can't overstate that, that we hire a lot of athletes or people who are on teams and they just have that work ethic. Um, But I, I think there's something to being a year, you know, a company in its sixth year, there is some maturity and some understanding of how to leverage the assets that we've created that wasn't true in year one or two, right? Now we're able to do more for our clients. We have a better understanding of how to leverage them. So to point to a specific example, I won't name which bank, but a a top four U.S. bank, one of their senior asset managers and I were on the phone yesterday, and by that I mean for their private wealth sector. So they're managing... Uh, assets for family offices with 75 million in commercial real estate holdings or more and trying to go through our, their various portfolios that they're managing and answer a lot of questions. What does it make sense to trade right now? What is going to be a source of liquidity for various family events? What should they just not sell um, because it's going to be durable or risky to sell? Those are typical questions that we're, uh, answering or reviewing in partnership with those asset managers. And the answers look like, okay, let's look at quick service restaurants or QSRs as the industry calls them. And let's look and see what the volume is that's on the market today. What was the volume yesterday? What are some of the top line news stories? Well, let's look at McDonald's, Chipotle, that kind of thing. What's our philosophy about buying or selling those stocks right now? And, Given the lease term that's remaining, if you choose not to sell today, then likely you're going to want to hold for another five years, take on another five years of debt. You know, what's your um, depreciated cash flow over that period relative to the risk? And we make judgments. I mean, every investor has a different risk level, right? So we make judgments accordingly. But Predominantly, it's data-driven against what's happening in the market right now. 
I don't think that what we're doing is earth shattering. It is exactly what you would do in a stock portfolio. It's just not something that most commercial real estate investors are able to do because they don't have that categorization or formula for reviewing their particular tenants. Yeah. Um, you guys started a company six years ago, which I would argue was at sort of the top of the market or near the top of the market, right? Um, the, the last three years or the half of your existence has been probably challenged like anyone else's business. Um, what has that taught you? What are some kind of, you know, pivots you had to do, considerations you had to make uh, to sort of, you know, power through COVID and in the last 36 months, essentially, of, uh, of what has been a huge disruption, not just in this industry, but everywhere? COVID taught me a bunch of lessons uh, in terms of leadership. The biggest leadership lesson that I learned uh, was based on a judgment call that I made in uh, early March. I think about March 10th, I went to my partner, Scott, and our staff, and I said, I need a budget going forward 12 months that assumes zero revenue, and we... Uh, don't lay anyone off. I'm fine with cutting expenses. I'm fine with not paying bonuses. Um, I need that budget. And I want you guys to team together to come up with those ideas. Everything is on the table to be cut except your salaries and your people. So you can look at each other and feel safe about that. I can't promise you about 13 months from now. But this, let's, let's see what we can do and try and get through this crisis. You know, and in March 2020, you really had no idea. Is this six weeks? Is this the rest of our lives? You know, you just really had no idea what was coming next. And I think it made everybody in the company feel they were part of the team, that they could really trust each other, even though we weren't physically in the same room for many months after that. It enabled them to have a level of trust with one another that I don't think they'd ever really felt at a company before. They knew they were going to have a job. They just had to tap into that work ethic that I talked about. Uh, all hands on deck is what they they have. Uh, they did some things during that period, by the way, like Netflix has a very famous culture deck. They had read the Netflix book together of how Netflix was uh, – became a company and they loved the idea of having a culture deck. So they created one. Scott and I did not create the culture deck. Yeah, the employees cool. did. And it is very cool because when we recruit, we can share it more like this is who the employees say they are. So take, take what you want from that. Um, they read a bunch of books together. I realized if they were under 32, they'd never been through a market cycle and some of them were kind of going into shock. Uh, so reading things uh, together, like Michael Lewis's panic, was really productive, enabled them to know, hey, you really shouldn't experience euphoria. You shouldn't experience panic. You should try and be in the middle, and there are always going to be market cycles. And whatever's happening now will change again, and it will change again and change again. Uh, and those essays that Michael Lewis put together really demonstrate that. Gave them some life experience or a look at life experience that they hadn't personally had, which I think eased some tensions. But the big leadership lesson that I took away is protect your people that's your biggest asset. That's the biggest capital investment that we've made. Uh, make them feel safe. Now, flash to Q4 2020, 
as you may recall, net lease actually did pretty well, especially relative to other assets. Retail was suffering, but there was a huge movement into industrial. Uh, we were able to double bonuses at the end of the year and do a lot of very cool things for our people. And we did. We had no layoffs. Um, I think that taught them this is the kind of company uh, that we are. This is not only who we want to be or aspire to be, but we need your help to be. And they developed the skill set themselves. They had painful conversations with vendors, right? I didn't have to have all those conversations. Right. They did, but they were able to go to a vendor and say, we're going to cut, we're paying you down to, you know, down to a third. But they knew, hey, the person on the phone with me, you know, my, my partner in this other division, both of us are going to keep our jobs if we have this conversation. And that was pretty cool. Yeah. Pretty cool teaming. Yeah, no, I bet. I bet. In terms of um, kind of business focus, did it give you an opportunity to, you know, enter into new areas where maybe you guys weren't active before? Did it give you an opportunity to sort of, you know, scale the business in a certain way? I, I tell folks, you know, I, lo- I love expanding during recessions because I think it's yeah. uh, it's really a good a good time to do those kinds of things. So I'm always curious, you know, how other uh, business leaders like like you um, looked at that time from kind of a growth uh, perspective after the initial 12 months of, you know, having to suffer through um, some of those other challenges. The thing that I tell our people, and I have been telling them again in the last few weeks, is you don't earn the business during the boom cycles. That's when you reap the benefits of what you do in the down cycles. The thing to scale, I feel, in net lease, because it is so family-oriented and it is such a small world, such a small group of advisors that work in net lease in the U.S., this is a time for us to earn those relationships and to do extra work, to have more conversations, to provide advisory. And yes, a lot of that leads to fees, but I need our people focused on the conversation and their relationship and not the fees right now. During the boom, we'll reap all the benefits and I don't even have to tell them. They'll be such inbound. And and that has happened. That happened during the first 12 months. We just tried getting everybody on the phone. It was really less than that for six months. Get everybody on the phone, get them through shock, get them through tenant negotiations, confusion about PPP. We didn't understand it either, you know, trying to get everybody uh, the resources and the connections and the other advisors they needed. And then when things really started to take off, especially in 2021, uh, we reaped the benefits. We had a great 2021. And then, you know, now again is a time when we are trying to talk to people, provide them with debt solutions. A lot of our developers, we haven't really talked about developers. A lot of our developers are able to get construction financing, but it's at much lower leverage than in years past. So when they bid a lot of these projects, they anticipated 90% loan to cost, and now they're getting 65. Yeah. So they're actually having an equity crisis. Okay, where can we help them dig up uh, that equity, there are a number of private lenders stepping forward to fill that gap. And so we just have to connect the dots and help them. And that's, that is not immediately a place where B&E is having a windfall. Hopefully we will, you know, get that through the pipeline we're developing with those developers or creating with those developers through that debt work. Um, I think that's really the part that I want everyone focused on. And I want everyone who would listen to this podcast to feel liberty to call us. We don't have to make an immediate fee 
especially during these tough times when people are really just trying to understand the landscape. That's not, you know, now is not the time to make bank that happens organically during the booms. Yeah. 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 To, to further answer your question in 2020, we began developing the seller dashboards that we have today. And so having a real time owner report was this thing that I dreamed of as a broker. It's the thing I think most of us hate the most, because if you're a doer and you want to be on the field playing and getting things done for your listings to go off the field once a week or once every two weeks and spend half a day pulling all your notes together, you don't feel productive. You don't feel like you're doing your job. And so you start to dread it and it feels very administrative yeah. that no one can do it but you. In creating seller dashboards, we correlated our CRM and the BNE platform. So real time as our guys are on the phone and they're taking notes, it wraps all the way back up to the owner report. And then we have an algorithm that amalgamates that into various pie charts and things that are very visual. Like one would be a, a pie chart that shows negative feedback from buyers because most buyers don't want to buy, right? You talk to a hundred buyers one of them wants to buy. So what do the 99 people say? There's a trend line that is really useful for sellers. And it also takes some of the friction out of the relationship between the broker and the seller. The seller can really see, Hey, we made a thousand phone calls we got a hundred NDAs. I'm just making these numbers up. Yeah. We have, you know, 20, 30 real buyers. We have 10 offers. Here's what all of that feedback and data point looks like. Also, you can click all the way through our owner reports and get to the real person that we talked to, which some brokers kind of want to hide as though it's their secret sauce that we talked to this person. We find that transparency to just be electric with the seller. First of all, they really trust us once we've told them, you know, or shared our work to that level, but also sometimes ABC fund that we don't recognize the name of, they recognize Mike Jones who leads that fund and knows that he owns the property next door, which gives us tremendous insight into what's happening in the sales process and aligns us with our seller. That's very cool. So that's what we were doing in the product division during that period. And everybody was head heads down working hard on that. It was pretty cool to deliver the next year. Yeah, that's that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, Camille, as we um, close this conversation, I'd like to kind of focus a little bit on, you know, you personally and your leadership. Um, you know, you've worked across the industry now for for a little while. You know, as 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 we all know, it's a place that's challenged with, you know, diversity. So it's great to see a female leader in the industry um, what does that mean for you personally? The person I like to quote, since we focus so much on family in this, the person I like to quote as impacting my leadership the most is my grandmother. She was one of those moms or grandmothers that told you you could be anything, that she loved you. She was just you know, exceptionally supportive. But a meaningful piece of advice that she gave me was that you – can be afraid. You should be afraid. There are things that are scary in the world. It is very scary to go into a room of blue and black suits, all men, and you are one of the only women or often the only woman. That's very scary, especially early in your career, uh, especially if the energy is you don't belong here. 
So my grandmother told me it's okay to feel afraid. The key to success is to be brave. So what happens when you are in that room? What advantages do you have because you are the only female in that room or one of the only women? First of all, everyone remembers me, (laughs) right? (laughs) I had a guy at an event at a big uh, patio, one of the hotels here in New York, come out and he said, someone said, you were out here. I hoped I could find you. And we kind of laughed about that together. I was the only woman on the whole patio of like 150 men. Well, probably wasn't that hard to find me. So that's a wonderful advantage. And you need to think the men beside you, as easy as certain conversations may seem for them, they're in a sea of people that look and act and have a very similar education to them. How do they differentiate? You already have that advantage. I think that's just one example of how to be brave. I talk to a lot of men who have daughters that need internships and that kind of thing. First of all, listeners, please reach out. We have a ton of internships and we'd love to hire women. But I think it does require a supportive father or some kind of mentor that can help get you in the right seats help get you in the right deals. My parents have made loads of mistakes. I don't want to pretend they're perfect in any way, but they have given me some key points of advice that I've stuck with. And I think for a lot of the women out there looking to progress in a career, NetLease is a wonderful entry point. I feel like you could do much more complex real estate or debt or something after having this fundamental building block on your resume, you don't have to understand the boiler or, you know, anything functional in terms of property management. You really can start with the math. You can start with the basics and understanding the tenant. You can do a lot of it in a spreadsheet or remotely to analyze whether or not the investment will make sense. Most of the tornadoes that could hit the building are on the tenant. So you're in a much lower risk uh, category. Now you may not make, uh, you know, 500% on your investment, but I think that's okay in terms of a place to start learning how to help your family, help yourself, help your fund that you're working for. So I think NetLease is a wonderful place to start a career in commercial real estate. Yeah. Um, and, and you you kind of stole my thunder a little bit for my final question, Camille, which is going to be you know, some advice to kind of people trying to get into the industry. But maybe let's, um, you know, change that to maybe lessons learned, sort of things that, you know, you wish you knew, uh, things you would say to your younger self if you had the opportunity. Just as I say that my personal leadership lesson out of COVID was that the equity or the capital that's most important to the company is the people. You know, it's something you read all the time or, you you know, people quote, but I think you kind of have to experience to really fully believe. I think that's true to young people as well. To my younger self, I would say just chase people who you want to be more like try and get in the room with people that you can do deals with that you can learn from that you want to be more like get out of the room with people that you don't want to be more like i think sometimes there are situations where again you are going to be afraid you're going to be alone in a room of 150 people i'm not saying avoid those situations 
but I'm saying the team that you go to work with every day, wherever you go to school, those kinds of choices, make sure that you're surrounded by people that you want to be more like that can make you better. In tennis, there's a concept of playing up that the only way to get better at tennis is to play people who will beat you and to surround yourself with those kind of players, play them all the time and you'll quickly improve. I think that's relative to a career in commercial real estate as well. Wonderful. Camille, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for all the good questions. That was another episode of the Real Perspectives podcast, and we thank you for taking the time to listen to it. Conversations like these help us comprehend our evolving industry better and hopefully provide a perspective that helps you understand the dynamics of commercial real estate. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our show and tell your colleagues about it. That is the best way to spread the news and help us remain relevant across the industry. Cheers. Cheers.